the idea of preaching to help spread the good news. Let's think a little bit bigger. How can we affect people's lives with the good news? I have an idea. It's not enough that we just tell people about God, we have to show people how our world can be different with Him. We have a pretty broken society, and I think we can really make a difference if we just shared Him with the world. Social change, in my opinion, is the only way to show who Christ really is. You know, I really like the sound of that, and it sounds kind of familiar. everyone. Welcome to the well here at STSA. It's great to see so many people here today, so many new people, like Katie was saying. For those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Steve, and I am super excited to be with you guys today. And if you have been around the church uh, during this season, uh, you'll hear a common greeting. And hopefully if you're around for a couple weeks, you'll hear a common greeting. We say, Christ is risen, and the people respond and say, truly, he is risen, or indeed, he is risen. And if you were with us a couple weeks ago on Easter, we came Easter night, and we received the greatest news in the history of the world. And we came on that Saturday night, and there was a breaking news uh, 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 thing, a ticker across the screen that said, Christ is risen. And it was breaking news that we, we had never heard before, that somebody died and rose from the dead. That the news was that death has been defeated by death. Okay, that sin has no power over us, that we have defeated and he has defeated death for us so that we can live eternally. It was the greatest news in the history of the world that we received two weeks ago on Easter. And we came back and we all agreed that this news is a commandment, that we are commanded to share this news. But we all agreed over the past couple of weeks that there is a commandment, that we are, are, are commanded to go and share that news. It's not an option. It's not a suggestion that we have to, now that we have received the greatest news in the world, we must go and share that news. Now, how you do it is up to you. And how you do it is different for each person. But the commandment of sharing the news is a commandment for all. Our theme verse, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, our theme verse for this series says what? It says, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. Be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So we decided that we are all called to witness, but how you witness can look very, very different. So what we did in this series, this series called Mission Witness, is take five different ways of witnessing and each week we're going to look at a different way to witness. And we're going to look at a different person who exemplified that way of witnessing. Last week, for those of you who were with us, we talked about the way of speaking. In particular, we looked at the life of St. Fatini, somebody who we know but don't really know, right? Because we know her in the, in, in the Bible as the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well, and we know her story up until that point. But our Orthodox tradition teaches us that she went on to become the greatest preacher, one of the greatest preachers in the history of the world. And everywhere this woman went, she was speaking and talking and talking and talking and talking about her encounter with Jesus, about her, her meeting with the Savior. And she became one of the greatest preachers that the church has ever known. 
And we looked at this idea of speaking as a form of evangelism. And that kind of jives with what we know to be evangelism, right? Like speaking is the, the more popular, more common thing that when you think about what is the way to evangelize, it's speaking. So that kind of jives with our idea of evangelism and witnessing. Today we're going to talk about a very different form of evangelism. Very, very different from speaking. Today we're going to talk about using change to evangelize and being a witness of change and using change to bring about evangelism and preaching in our society. This witness focuses on bringing about some type of change in our society. So this one is really all about like the social justice warriors in the room are going to like this one. This one's about activism. This one's about doing something, seeing some type of, of thing in society that we can bring about change to witness to the power and glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me just point out the elephant in the room, okay, because I can see a couple people are grinning when I said the social justice and a couple people that know me, including my wife, is actually grinning. You know why? I know why they're laughing. Because everything I just described, I am not. Okay, I am not an activist. I am not a social justice warrior. I like to consider myself a warrior, but no one has ever called me a warrior of any sort, okay? I'm more of, some people call me a scaredy cat. I say rule follower, okay? I'm a rule follower, okay? I am not a social justice warrior. You know how I know this? Because I live in a house with three social justice warriors, okay? I live in a house with three activists. My wife, I think, and I'm not 100% sure, I don't see if I'll that, but I think my wife has been referenced on this stage before as an activist, okay? And I, I think there was a time before where she was actually like the example of an activist, someone who, who, who uh, uh, is like an activist in her life. My three-year-old has become a professional protester, okay? A professional protester. Whether it's what shoes to wear to go to school, whether it's what he's going to eat for dinner, or whether it's to wear a jacket in 10 degree weather. He is a professional protester. I'm not joking, you can ask my wife. Yesterday we went to Nordstrom to return a pair of shoes that we had just bought for the summer because he has refused to wear those shoes. And we were not gonna fight all summer about these shoes, so we went and returned the shoes and he got what he wanted through protesting. And my six month old, okay, my six month old is actually the real activist in the family. He has been to more protests and marches in his six months of life than I have been in 32 years of living. Okay, so I have a house full of activists and God just, God has a sense of humor with this stuff. Okay, this week I was preparing and I was actually, I was, I was having fun with this part and God showed me a visual difference between an activist and a non-activist. You ready to see a visual difference between an activist and a non-activist? In our house, we have a playroom for our, our, our two children, okay? And we have a white board, like, a, like an easel, like a white easel. And there is a side right here and a side right here. And we decided that this side belongs to dad and this side belongs to mom. And on this side, dad can do whatever he wants with the, the two boys. He can draw whatever he wants. They can work on whatever they want. He has control over this side. Mom has control over this side. She can do whatever she wants on this side. This is my side of the board, okay? As you can see, three on the top, three on the bottom, okay? You got your basic shapes, triangle, circle, square, all colored in nicely and neatly inside the lines. Okay, you gotta have the, the, the shapes because AP calculus is right around the corner, okay? And then, most importantly on the bottom, you got your sports, okay? And if you don't take anything away from this talk, 
except for this, you can never start too early on sports for your children, okay? Hammering these points home. You got your football, basketball, and baseball, okay? This is my side of the board. Symmetrical, three on the top, three on the bottom. This is my wife's side of the board, okay? There is protesting. I don't know if you can see it. There is chaos, okay? There is fighting. Some, I don't know why the colors are fighting with each other. Everything is outside the lines, and it's basically anarchy, okay, on her side of the board, okay? But the beauty of this series is I don't have to be an activist to listen to the rest of this talk. Just like last week, I don't need to be St. Fatini to listen to speaking. If I am somebody who's been gifted and, and talented in speaking, then I want to be inspired to do that. But if I'm not, then I want to have an appreciation for that form of evangelism. Right? So the goal today is to not make every single person an activist in here. I'm never going to be an activist. But what I can do is understand the role of, of change and using change to witness for Christ and using change to build God's kingdom. So regardless of what you are here today, my goal is either if you are an activist, my goal is to inspire you to get up off of your chair and to use your gift and to use your talent to bring about change and to evangelize and build God's kingdom. And if you are not that, then my goal is for you to appreciate the role of change and using change in our society to evangelize. And today, just like last week, we looked at the life of St. Fatini. We're going to look at another person, okay, an activist who used this idea of change to bring about uh, evangelism. And we're going to look at a famous uh, Christian activist who brought amazing social change in his society and change to his world. The man we're going to look at today, some of you may have heard of him. I was trying to get somebody that people haven't heard of. And that's kind of the theme if you kind of attend the next few weeks. It's going to be people you haven't heard of. So obviously when we talk about social justice activism, I could have done like Martin Luther King. Everyone's heard of it. I could have done like Mandela. Like these are all people we know of. But I wanted to get someone who not everyone has heard about. So the person we're going to look at very briefly is a man named Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Okay, and some of you have heard of him. And, and he, Diedrich Bonhoeffer is a theologian and activist who lived during the German resistance in, in Nazi Germany in the 1930s. Okay, now his story, and I'm going to run through his story kind of quickly because it's a great story, and if you have time, go home and Google it, Wikipedia, whatever. But the lessons from his story are even better, so I kind of want to get to those. But his story starts off very simply. It comes from very humble beginnings, like low, middle-class uh, family, and um, has no religious background whatsoever. Okay, his family has, has no religious background. They're actually musicians and artists. And so Dietrich Bonhoeffer is growing up, and he's showing like talent and gifts in the field of music and artistry. Everybody thinks he's going to become like a musician or an artist, and he's kind of going down that route. And at the age of 14, he shocks his family when he decides that he's going to give all of that away and go into the ministry, and he's going to study to become a priest. At that point, he gains his doctorate of theology from the University of Berlin in 1927, and that's actually where he took a special interest in the church's role in social justice. And that was kind of where he focused his studies on, is the idea of using the church as a mechanism to bring about change in society. In 1931, he's ordained as a priest in Germany at the age of 25. And this is significant because he's ordained as a priest in 1931. In 1933, Adolf Hitler becomes the chancellor of Germany. And this is where the story gets very muddy. Okay, up until this point, right, like I said, regular guy, lower middle class family, no strong religious background, wants to serve God, goes to become a priest, gets ordained as a priest, serving in the church. And here, 
Now we get to 1933. And 1933 is where everything takes a turn. Adolf Hitler is elected as Chancellor of Germany. And the problem here, if you look at like history, is the Christian church in Germany supported the election and rise to power of Adolf Hitler. And there were major segments and significant portions of the church in Germany that were supporting Hitler's rise to power. So this becomes a real big problem for Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He is a priest, a very, very young priest, 27 years old at this time. He decides to take a stand against the church and against the leadership of the church. Two days after Hitler is elected, he goes on the radio, like German public radio, and he gives an address, a scathing address against Hitler. It's, bad, it's so bad to the point that he's cut off in midair while he's speaking, and, and his address is, is gone from the airwaves. So he, at that point, becomes an enemy of Hitler and becomes an enemy of the government. In April of 1933, he officially stands against the church in Germany, and he declares that the church must stand in the way of Nazism and, and stand in the way of Hitler. When the church doesn't decide to do that, he breaks away from the church and starts a different church. Then he's become an outcast in society. Okay, he's outcasted by the church, and he is, of course, an enemy of the government. And this, at this point, begins the persecution of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. His leaders and followers who came with him are now arrested and imprisoned. His license to teach, like his seminary license to teach, is revoked. And then his seminary is actually shut down. And now he's receiving threats on his life from the government. It was at this time that he actually wrote one of his more famous books that some of you may have seen quotes or, or heard about called The Cost of Discipleship. This is what he says at this time that he's receiving all these persecutions. He says, cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. At this point, he is fighting on every front. He is fighting the church leadership, he is fighting the government, and he has become an enemy of everyone in Germany. And it was at this point in 1936 that he receives uh, uh, an opportunity to flee to the United States. And he receives asylum in the United States. And he comes to the U.S. and stays here for a few years. And this point in his life and this decision to flee to the United States becomes the greatest single regret of his life. And he comes here and he receives refuge, safety, asylum, security. And this becomes, in his own words, one of his greatest regrets and biggest mistakes of his life. Three years after staying in the United States, he decides, I can't run away from the calling. I can't run away from this idea of bringing about change in my home country that I've been called to. So he goes back to Germany, and he creates secret organizations to help Jews who are in concentration camps, German Jews, flee and escape from concentration camps. So he teams up with uh, 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 like the Jewish people in Germany, and he creates these secret organizations that are now helping people flee concentration camps. He saves thousands of Jewish lives and helps thousands of Jewish people flee Germany. Now, of course, the plan is uncovered. In 1943, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is arrested and imprisoned. He spends three years in various prisons, concentration camps, and all these things. He's put on trial in 1944 and sentenced to death by hanging. 
and he dies in 1944, um, by, uh, is, is, is hung, and, and he dies. And right before his death, he penned a letter in jail. Okay, and there's so many quotes of him, and I actually, if you see on your handout, I put so many quotes, so many nice quotes that he wrote. But right before he died, a few days before he died, he penned a letter in jail. And to me, he summed up his life, and he summed up this idea of kind of his struggles and the way he used change to, to, to witness to God. This is what he says in his last letter. He says, there remains an experience of incomparable value. We have for once learned to see the great events of world history from below, from the perspective of the outcasts, the suspects, the maltreated. In short, from the perspective of those who suffer. Mere waiting and looking on is not Christian behavior. Christians are called to compassion and to action. What I love about that quote is we read about Hitler. We read about Nazi Germany in the history books. One of and probably the most like awful time and most evil time in the history of the world. And we read about it. And Bonhoeffer looks at his life and he looks at the totality of his life. And he said, I have just witnessed one of the greatest events or one of the, 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 the most catastrophic events in history from my priesthood, from my castle, from my leadership position, from my, my high and mighty place. No. He said that I have just witnessed this amazing event that people are going to read about for years and years and years and years with the poor, with the afflicted, with the suffering, with those who are in the concentration camps, with those who are being persecuted. That was his life. Okay, and that was where he experienced one of the most amazing times and, and historical periods in life. There's so many lessons that we can learn from his life. And there's so many lessons that I personally... This is really all I'm doing today is I learned about this guy's life and I'm sharing a couple lessons that I learned from his life. There's so many lessons that we can take away. I just wanted to quickly go over three lessons that I learned from the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the idea of using change to witness for Christ. The first lesson is to always be prepared to fight for justice. Just like our theme verse says, like what did our theme verse say? It says, preach the gospel, be ready in season, out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort, defend, all these different ways that you always have to be ready to fight. You never know who you're going to have to fight. Just like speaking, we we're talking about speaking last week, just like boldness is a prerequisite to speaking, that in order to speak and evangelize and, 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 and use like speaking to evangelize, you have to be bold. I think you have to be willing to fight if you want to bring about change. And this isn't like fist fighting and arguing and this but it's the idea of standing up for what is right, no matter what. The idea is that I'm going to stand up and fight no matter who it's from, no matter where it is, no matter uh, against who. The beautiful thing about Dietrich Bonhoeffer is who did he fight against? Who did he stand up to? Hitler? No, not really. I mean, he did. But towards the end, he was fighting against the good guys. He was fighting against the leadership. That he basically said, you know what? There is truth, and truth is truth, no matter what. And if you stand in the way of truth, Mr. Leader of Germany Church, I'm going to stand against you. And if you stand in the way of what's right, Mr. Hitler, I'm going to stand against you. I don't care who it is. I don't care how big your hat is. I don't care what your title is. I don't care what your position is. Dietrich Bonhoeffer knew a truth, and that to him was the most important thing. And that truth was that the church, the Christian church, was the only entity 
that was able to stop the evil of Adolf Hitler and Nazi Germany. And he was going to fight to the death for that truth, no matter who it involved. Listen to what he says about the, the, the church in Germany and Christianity in general. He says, Christianity stands or falls with its revolutionary protest against violence, arbitrariness, and pride of power. And with its plea for the weak, Christians are doing too little to make these points clear. Christendom adjusts itself far too easily to the worship of power. Christians should give more offense, shock the world far more than they are doing now. You see, in Bonhoeffer's case, there was nothing more important than standing up for what is right and standing up for the truth and standing up for those who can't stand up for themselves and being a voice for the voiceless and standing up for justice and fighting for it no matter what. My question today is what are we fighting for? What are we fighting for? What are we saying, you know what? I don't care who's standing in the way of this. I don't care what anyone says. I don't care how unpopular this opinion is. Truth is truth. Right is right. People need to be defended. Justice needs to be served. One of the most beautiful verses that we read a couple weeks ago during Holy Week, for those of you with us during Holy Week, is a verse that comes from the wisdom of the book of the Son of Sirach. And if you're with us during the liturgy, Father Joseph actually referenced that book. That book is not a book that's in like a traditional Bible that you would pick up or that you probably have at your home, but it's in our Orthodox Bibles and in our Orthodox tradition. It's a beautiful book. And there's a very simple verse in that uh, uh, book that we read during Holy Week, which in, in Wisdom of Son of Cyrus in chapter 4, says, fight to the death for truth, and the Lord God will fight for you. And on the surface, this verse sounds really cool, right? There's a lot of fighting, there's action, there's like God fighting, and there's a lot of cool stuff going on in this verse. But think about it for a second. Fight to the death for truth, and the Lord God will fight for you. There is a direct correlation between how much we fight for those who can't fight, between how much we fight for the weak, the poor, the suffering, the, the afflicted, and how much God will fight for us. And in my very elementary, you know, kind of uh, understanding of, of when I get to heaven, I always think about when I get to heaven, okay, and I'm going to get to those pearly gates, and there's going to be a bouncer, right? It's usually St. Peter in the cartoons. Okay, and there's going to be a bouncer there, and I'm not going to be able to say anything, right? Like, I can't defend myself because... I have nothing good about me. Like, someone's going to have to defend me. And so that lawyer is going to come. Hopefully that lawyer is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's going to come and he's going to defend me. What do I want him to do as my lawyer? I want him to fight to the death for me. I want him to kick and scream and say, this guy's getting in there. And this guy is the best. And this guy deserves it. And this guy, and you don't know, and all this stuff. And I want him to be blue in the face, fighting to the death for me. And now if that's what I want from God, isn't that what he wants for me? That he wants me to fight for those who can't fight, to stand up for justice, to stand up for truth, to fight to the death for people who don't have a voice. If I want that from him, then he wants that from me. That's what he expects for us here on, here on earth, is to fight for those in need, to fight for the oppressed, to fight for those who are suffering. So always be prepared to fight for justice. The second lesson from the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer is that you can never escape the cause you are called to. 
See, this, again, I'm not doing anything earth-shattering here. Okay, these are principles and lessons that we all know, but a great reminder for us today. This is like the Jonah principle, right? Like we know this from the story of Jonah, right? You can run, but you can't hide, right? It didn't work for Jonah, didn't work for Adam and Eve, didn't work for Moses, and it certainly didn't work for Dietrich Bonhoeffer. At the end of the day, running away from the calling God has called you to will never be successful. Like I told you, one of the biggest regrets and mistakes in the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer are those three years he spent in the United States. And he talks about it at the end of his life as if he has sinned like no greater sin than getting on that plane and choosing to come to the United States. Listen to what he says in his words about that decision. He says, I have come to the conclusion that I made a mistake in coming to America. Christians in Germany will have to face the terrible alternative of either willing the defeat of their nation in order that Christian civilization may survive or willing the victory of their nation and thereby destroying civilization. I know which of these alternatives I must choose, but I cannot make that choice from security, from a place of security. See, I don't doubt every single person here in this room can think of things that God is calling them to change in their life, in their family, in their neighborhood, in their community, in their society, in their world, and, and, and to use that to bring about change. But the question is, are we willing to embrace that calling or are we willing to run away from it? And now here's the problem. Here's the problem with that calling. Is that oftentimes, the things we are called to change come from a traumatic experience or painful moment in our lives. Right? The mother who is called to fight against drunk driving is called to do so because she lost a child in a drunk driving accident. The man who is called to stand up to racism usually is called to do so because of a bigoted and unfair moment that he experienced in his life. The teenager who in his heart believes he can stop bullying is called to do so because of a bullying experience he or she experienced growing up. The woman who believes that she is called to be a voice for those who are sexually assaulted and raped is doing so usually because of an experience that no human being should ever have to go through. See, oftentimes the things we are running away from are actually the thing that God is trying to use to bring about healing. Healing for who? Healing for me? Not only healing for me, but healing for others. I told you, okay, I have a house full of activists. Okay, I have a house full of activists, and I'll prove it to you. I'll prove it to you. We, me and my wife, have been married almost seven years now. Okay, and we got married in 2010. And um, we were married in May of 2010. And we were like, you know, we were young and la-la land marriage, like first couple months of marriage and everything is amazing and all this stuff. And all of a sudden, about six months after we got married, uh, my wife started not feeling well. Just started like getting sick and then like cold and stuff like that and muscles and aches and stuff like that. And she's like the picture of health. Like she looks just as healthy as any other person here. And so whatever, you know, we didn't think anything of it. Then it started to get worse. Okay, and then it started to become like, I can't get out of bed. Then it started to become like, I can't move like, like certain parts of my body. Then it becomes like, okay, like doctors aren't sure what it is. And a couple of months after that, she was diagnosed with uh, an autoimmune disease. And um, she was getting worse. 
Okay, and it was actually to the point where, like, there were certain days she physically couldn't get out of bed. And she ended up quitting her job because it was, like, too painful. And she started taking a boatload of medicine, right, a boatload of medicine. And the medicines, if anyone is on a lot of medicine, has a lot of side effects, okay, and those side effects are not great. And this was first year of marriage, okay, and first year of marriage is, is not the easiest thing when everything's going great. And this was a real strain on our marriage, and I... Uh, was unequipped to handle this kind of situation. Okay, and what I did is I busied myself in work and friends and, and service and stuff like that. And she was kind of on her own. This was a really difficult time for us as a marriage, as a family, and, and, and physically and things like that. And God did an amazing work through that time. And God really opened her eyes and she started learning and researching about health and how to get healthy, and how to live healthy, and how to eat healthy, and how to be healthy. And she did all this research, and, and kind of studied all this stuff, and she ended up doing a bunch of different therapies, and she got healthier, and she got off all her medicines, and God did like a miracle in our lives, where God totally transformed her health, and transformed not only her health, but like my health, and our family's health, and God did like great stuff. And I would bet, okay, and I won't do this, and I won't take a show of hands, but I would bet all the money in my pocket versus all the money in your pocket, that if I ask for a show of hands of how many people have reached out to my wife for some type of, of health or some type of like advice or guidance or on, on like health and healthy living, I bet in a room of 200 people, I get 20 people. I bet I can get 20. I get 10% of people in this room who've reached out to her. Okay. Now let me ask a question. Why would any idiot, can I say idiot? Father Anthony's not here. I can say it. Why would any idiot stand up here and share this, like, very personal stuff? That was not easy to share. Okay? I'm not a share. Did you see the whiteboard? <laughs> Why would someone share that? Like, easier thing is for us to say, you know what? God did a great miracle. That was in the past. Let's move on. Let's not talk about that anymore. Like, we're healthy. We're happy. Kids, everything's great. Why would we talk about that? Why would I bring that up? Because I bet there's someone in here that might be going through that same thing. And because my wife learned right after that that she can't run from her calling because God has called her to bring healing to others. That God brought healing to her. Why? So that she can live this amazing life and we can live this amazing life? No. So that we can use the pain, that we can use those painful experiences and traumatic moments in our life to bring healing to others. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5. The verse says, resist him, talking about the devil, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Why will God make us strong, firm, and steadfast? Why will he do that? Because the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Not so that I can be the strongest and the firmest and whatever. Because God knows that he gives us pain. He gives us trials. He gives us tribulations so that we can encourage others. So that we can embrace them and use them to bring about change. To witness to his power. To witness to his glory. To witness to, to, to the change that we can have in our lives. So that's the second point. And that's the second lesson in the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Finally, the last one. Number three, 
is to never replace your creator with your cause. Now, having said all of that, talk for, you know, 25, 30 minutes about your cause. The most important thing is your cause and fighting for your cause and defending your cause and embracing your cause and doing all that. The most important thing is that we always see our cause through the lens of our creator. And we never replace him for the created cause that he has given us. And everything we do for our cause, everything that, that, that we focus on for our cause is always behind and through the lens of him who gave us this cause, him who gave us this opportunity to change. The second we shift our focus from our creator to our cause, we have lost everything. I see people who get so tunnel vision, so focused, I am going to bring about this change. I'm going to fight for this. They lose sight of God. They lose sight of the one, the, the one who gave them that opportunity to change. Romans chapter 1, verse 25, says they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. How, how does that make sense? As we worship the thing that is created, but we don't worship and we don't focus on the one who created it. That's what I love so much about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, is that you could never separate his cause from his creator. That was the basis of everything that he did. That was the basis of his entire fight. See, the, the, the question is, what's different between everything I talked about, about embracing your cause, fighting for justice, what's different about this than the, the myriads of philanthropists and humanitarians who do wonderful work in the name of justice, who do wonderful work in the name of, of human rights and all these wonderful causes? The difference is our foundation. The difference is our basis for that, our idea that, the, that everything we do stems from our knowledge of a risen Savior who has given freedom and justice for all, who has set the captives free and our desire to serve Him. That's the difference. You can't separate your cause from your Creator. Dietrich Bonhoeffer had this foundation inside him. You know how I know this? Is right before he died, okay, a, a person, a lawyer, was present at the hanging. And he wrote about the, the scene of, of the hanging of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. This is what he said in his letter. He says, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer kneeling on the floor praying fervently to God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a short prayer and then climbed the few steps to the gallows, brave and composed, his death ensued after a few seconds. This is an important part. He was one of the very few men I have ever met to whom God was real and ever close to him. In the almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. I love that at the, the, the moment that Dietrich Bonhoeffer was squeezed, at the moment that everything inside of him was taken away and he was squeezed like a sponge, you know what came out? His love and devotion to God. Not a final speech, not a final message for Hitler, not a final plea to the church, not a nothing about nothing about his cause. The only thing that came out, the only thing that people saw was his devotion and love to God and his submission to his will. 
That's a man who could never separate his cause from his creator. At the end of the day, the question that we have today in front of us, for all of us, is what cause do you believe is worth fighting for today? What is the one aspect of this broken world that when you see it, when you touch it, when you get close to it, you just can't stand? What is a reality that is so troubling that when you see it, you you jump off the couch and are moved to action? Is it eradicating AIDS? Fighting extreme poverty? Reigniting love-starved marriages? Embracing marginalized people groups? Rescuing children who have been sexually abused and assaulted? What is it? It's something different for everyone. But whatever it is, it's our duty to find that thing, to, to use our gift of change to witness and to show people and to build God's kingdom. And the beautiful thing is, when we find that one thing, we find that thing that burns in our hearts and we go to God and we say, God, this is, I feel like this is my one thing. This is the thing that I can't stand. This is the reality that I believed you called me to. You know the response you're going to get? God's going to look at you and he's going to say, I feel the exact same way. I've been waiting for someone to get up and do something. Now let's go solve this together. That's what God's going to tell us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer found his thing. Bonhoeffer heard that voice about rescuing his native country from the evils of Adolf Hitler. And that's why at the end of his life, this is what he said. He said, silence in the face of evil is itself evil. Not to speak is to speak, and not to act is to act. He found his one thing. My hope and prayer today is that we can find our one thing, that we can use our gift of change to witness to the risen Christ and to glorify him and to bring about change in our society and and to build God's kingdom. Let's stand up for a prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the one God, amen. We thank you, our dear Heavenly Father, for this day. We thank you, Lord, for bringing us here, allowing us to, to, to be present in your church. We ask you, Lord, that you would move in our hearts, that you would inspire us, that you would call us to bring about change in our society, that you would use us to shock the world far more, to stand up for those who, who, who have no one, to be a voice to the voiceless, to fight for the truth, We pray, Lord, for all those who have no one to remember them, all those who are marginalized, all those who are in need of your justice, love, and truth this day. We ask all these things in your holy and precious name, through the intercessions of all your saints. Here's when we say thankfully, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord. Nice kingdom to come.